You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. As Ralph explained, uh, we are we desire to be a biblically saturated church, so we're glad when you have your Bibles with you and if you do have your Bibles, open to Genesis 32, starting verse 13. We're going to read all the way through 32. Page 19 in the Bibles and the seat backs in front of you. And follow along as we read. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place, the name of the place, Peniel saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have no one else to turn to but to you. In these times of need, in our times of need, so many things going on in 
the world around us, but even in our own lives. And you know what they are. We look to you and we trust in you. We thank you for your word and your spirit that speaks to our hearts. May we not just get in the word on Sunday mornings, but every day. Look to see what your word has to say to us. And then be obedient and faithful. We ask you to bless us this morning as we continue in worship. May your name be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. are you? No, I'm not talking about the 1978 Who song. Kids, you can look that one up later. I'm asking, who are you? Now, that's a pretty simple question that doesn't necessarily have a simple answer. But believe it or not, for most of my life, I felt like I had a good answer to that question. If you asked me, I would answer immediately. Felt like I knew who I was. That is until I was asked that question in a rather embarrassing moment. You see, at the time, I was going to Northern Michigan University, and my last year there, I was a part of a campus ministry group called Crew. And this group would meet every Thursday night, and we'd have a speaker, either one of the leaders or a student would come in and speak. And that night, there was a cross-country girl named Rita who was sharing the message that night. And I had known Rita for a few years although not all that well. You see, we had some mutual friends, and we were more of just acquaintances. That's why I was so shocked when, at the beginning of her speech, she asked me to stand up in front of the sea of 75 college students. And she asked me that question. She said, Jonathan, do me a favor and tell me who you are. But you can't use wrestling to do so. Now, before she added that last part, I was all ready to answer that question, but she stole the words right out of my mouth. And I found myself standing there, and I'm not actually sure if smoke started coming out of my ears or not, but my brain was definitely in meltdown mode. I'm a wrestler. I'm a wrestler. That's who I am. I mean, my whole life, I had been a wrestler. I grew up with my dad going to wrestling tournaments, and when I was eight years old, I started wrestling myself. And as long as I could remember, my only dream in life was to be an Olympic gold medalist. And after I did that, I would go on to coaching. And eventually, I would retire, and they would bring in my casket, and they would wheel me out of the wrestling room. I'm a wrestler. Now, Rita didn't mean to embarrass me that morning. She was trying to illustrate a point about her own running career coming to an end and how she was having a bit of an identity crisis. And I'm sure she made that point really well, but my brain was still fried from the question she asked me. But little did Rita know that I was grappling with my own identity even before I came in that morning. You see, I had come there uh, in that point in my life wondering who I was. You see, in that phase of my life, God was working on my heart, and he was convicting the man who called himself a Christian but wasn't following Christ. 
I was being confronted by my sin and trying to figure out what God wanted me to do with my life. You see, God was working in my heart. It's very similar to something that's going on in our text here this morning. You see, we're coming to the end of someone's identity that we have been following for a long time through the book of Genesis. And that man is Jacob. You see, we first began Jacob's story back in Genesis chapter 25. And in that text, we learn that he was born just slightly after his older twin brother Esau. And he came out grabbing onto his brother's heel. And because of that, his parents gave him the name Jacob. And Jacob loosely translates to heel grabber, but more literally translate deceiver or liar. And throughout Jacob's whole life, he took that literal translation of his name seriously. He deceived and cheated and tried to take everything by his own power and his own control. And eventually he would come to the end of his, his brother's uh, anger and his brother would be so furious with him that he'd want to kill him. Jacob would have to flee to the land of Haran where he would meet up with his uncle, where the two most noble deceivers would go back and forth trying to trick one another until eventually that time would come to an end and God would call Jacob to come home. This morning, as we find Jacob on his journey home, we will find out that he's finally coming to meet his older brother Esau, who he left 20 years ago. The lies and deception of his past are now coming up to, uh, upon him, and we will see that God is bringing an end to Jacob. This morning, as we dive into our, question, I want, uh, our text, I want you to keep that question in mind. Who are you? And as we walk through Jacob's story, we will see how God will confront the worst of Jacob. And as his time is distressed, he will change him and make him into something new. And we will see three points this morning that help us understand how God meets us in times of struggle and distress and changes our heart. So with that said, we are diving into our text this morning. In our sermon in a sentence, those who, are called, who God calls, he calls by his name. Please open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 32 to 33. Now, a word of warning. We will be covering all of these two chapters here this morning. And that means we'll have to take some time to skip over certain passages, which I'll do my best to summarize for you. But there's another note that I want to give you before we move in. This is a rather difficult passage with a lot of explanations that don't really make a whole lot of sense. I'll be doing my best to clear up some of the, the fuzzy details in our, in our text this morning, but I have to warn you, you're going to leave with a lot of questions that aren't answered. But that being said, let's go ahead and dive into our first point here this morning. Point number one, God is working in times of distress. Follow with me in chapter 32 and verses 1 and 2. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when God saw them, when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahananiah. Now, as soon as we open up our text, we come to a, our first strange encounter. Jacob is making his way to the land of Canaan, and there he sees the angels of God. And then the text simply just moves forward. Jacob gives it a name, Mahananiah, which means either God's camp or two camps, and he simply moves on. 
Now, as strange as this is, there's something important that's going on here. You see, this isn't the first time that Jacob encountered God's angels. You see, you remember back to chapter 28 when Jacob was originally running from his brother Esau to the land of Haran, God met him in a dream. And in that dream, Jacob saw a ladder that was stretching from heaven all the way down to earth. And on that ladder, he saw angels ascending and descending. And in that dream, God came to him and told him that I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. I will be with you wherever you go. You see, these angels here in our text are a callback to the angels we saw in chapter 28 and the promises that God made to Jacob. And that's hugely important as we move forward. These promises that God would bless him and be with him. But what we see as we move forward is that Jacob has other things on his mind. As you can see in the the map that is above, Jacob is currently making his his way to the land of Seir, to meet his brother Esau. Now, as I pointed out already, last that Jacob heard, Esau wanted to kill him. In fact, when Jacob left his parents' house, his mother promised that she would do everything that she could to try to ease Jacob's anger. And when she did so, she would send word to Jacob to bring him back home. But the problem is that message never came. So as far as Jacob knows, Esau still wants to kill him. So thinking on his feet, what Jacob does is he gathers a group of messengers, and and in verses 3 to 5, he sends them down to Esau to get a gauge on what is happening in the situation. Is Esau still upset? And as we see as these messengers come back in verses 6 to 8, Jacob's not going to get the report that he desires. It says this, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there were 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided his people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp will be left to escape. Now, this report that came back to Jacob must have taken the breath right out of his lungs. Here comes Esau with 400 men making their way to Jacob's position. Now, Esau is not out for some leisurely stroll with the boys. Esau is on a march, and he is bringing with him a full-fledged army. This is a serious situation. Jacob realized that this, what's happening here, cannot be good, and so he devises a plan. What he does is he splits up his camp into two, and he sends them in either direction. And the whole idea here is if Esau goes one direction, the other camp will escape by going the other direction. Jacob here is trying to uh, uh, settle the situation by willingly giving up half of his people to his older brother Esau. But Jacob isn't just going to settle for Esau destroying his camp. He devises another plan. You see, in verses 13 to 21, Esau, or Jacob sets aside a large group of expensive animals and decides to send them down to Esau as a gift. And what he does is he breaks these, these uh, livestock up into groups and sends them down one by one, thinking that maybe somehow this will appease Esau's anger and he won't come and destroy his family. 
You see, Jacob is desperate. He's doing everything he can in this situation to fight off his brother and ward off the coming doom that he knows is coming. What we're seeing from Jacob is more of his cunning and trickery. It's Jacob trying to grasp hold of a situation that is outside of his control and cling on to the situation because he's desperate. But there's also something different we see in Jacob. You see, you might have missed it in our text because we skipped over it. But Jacob does something new in verses 9 to 12. Jacob prays. Read this prayer with me. It says, And Jacob said, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have sown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said to me, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. Now, there's two things we see here in Jacob's prayer. On one side, Jacob reveals the fear that he has in the situation. He is terrified of his brother. He is so frightened that he's doing everything he can to scramble in the situation. But the second thing we see in Jacob is a sense of dependency and humility. Here is Jacob recalling all the great things that God has done for him. How he's protected him and been with him and blessed him. He's also looking backwards to those promises that God made to him 20 years ago. Embedded in this prayer is all those promises that came to Jacob when he had that dream on the road to Haran. And now he's remembering what God told him. He is desperate and he is looking to God's promises. You know, we see in our text that although Jacob is acting sinfully, he is clinging to the Lord. And for those of us this morning who are living in times of distress and who are feeling like you're at your wit's ends, you have to understand that it is never too late to pray. It doesn't matter that if you're in your situation because of your own sinful actions. It doesn't matter if you've put yourself in a dangerous position. God wants to hear your prayers. When you have come to times of distress, prayer is always the right answer. God knows exactly what you need, and he knows the exact outcome that you need in your situation. And he's listening. The God of creation, the one who spoke out heaven and earth, not only wants to hear your prayers, but he wants to answer your prayers. And the truth is that God doesn't just want to change your circumstances through prayers. God wants to work on your heart. Because when we're finding ourselves in sinful situations, when we're reaching the consequences of our actions, God not only wants to deliver us through it, He wants to change us into someone new. 
And as we move forward in the text and we see Jacob's situation, we will see God working on Jacob's heart in a strange and unusual way. Which brings us to our second point this morning. God is working in times of struggle. Read with me in verses 22 to 23. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabuk. He, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Now, we see here as Jacob's gifts are making their way down to Esau, Jacob takes his family and begins to head south. But then he sends them on in front of him, and he finds himself alone. What we're seeing here in Jacob is a man who's out of options. You remember from last week in chapter 31 that when Jacob left the land of Haran, he made a deal with his uncle that he would never go back. And so what that means for Jacob is that he must go forward and he must deal with Esau. There is no turning back. And he is preparing himself in this moment to get ready for a struggle, a fight with his brother. But the fight that's coming is not the fight that Jacob expects. Read with me in verses 24 to 29. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail, Jacob answered, he touched, uh, he, uh, when the man realized that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. For Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he answered, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. Now, I have to admit that I have a lot of questions from this text that I don't necessarily have the answers to. The Bible scholar in me wants to know who Jacob is actually wrestling with. Is this God? Is this an angel? Is this a man? The theologian in me is wondering why, if this is God or an angel, how is it that Jacob is able to prevail? And the wrestler in me just wants to know how this match went down. I mean, did an angel ref drop down from heaven with a whistle and tell him to shake hands? Probably not. But the truth is, I don't have the answers to a lot of these questions. But as we navigate through this text, we can take it at face value and understand that what's going on here is both a physical and a spiritual reality. On one side, Jacob is physically locked in hand-to-hand combat, and he is fighting for his life. When the man realized that he wasn't going to prevail against Jacob, he reached down and he wrenched his hip, putting his hip out of socket. Jacob is locked in a fight that is iconic of his whole life. Throughout Jacob's whole story, he has been fighting and struggling and trying to get ahead in every single situation. This is Jacob's physical reality. And we learn that this event is so physical that Jacob will walk away with a limp for the rest of his life. But on the other side of things, this is also a spiritual reality. 
Our text says that Jacob is wrestling with God. Now, we don't know exactly how this is happening. Maybe God came down in a theophany or a uh, revealed, veiled vision, or, or maybe God sent an angel to wrestle in his place, or maybe this is even a pre-incarnate Christ. The truth is I don't have an answer to that question, but the reality here in our text is that God has stooped himself down to take on the likeness of a man to engage with Jacob. And God intends to bring this man to ruin. God is not here to let Jacob live. God is here to make Jacob not die. But God also intends to give him a new likeness. Read these verses with me again, verses 26 to 28. It says, but Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he answered, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, we see here in our text that Jacob is seeking after a blessing. And it seems that Jacob understands that he is wrestling with some sort of spiritual being. And what we need to understand is that in the ancient world, to give a name to a spiritual being was to hand over some sense of power. And we see all through the the New Testament that when Jesus encountered a demon, they would try to call out Jesus' name in order to gain control over him, which obviously would not work. So what Jacob is doing here by willingly handing over his name to God is giving up control. In other words, Jacob is handing Jacob over to God, and God is calling him something new. He says, no longer will you be Jacob. No longer will you be the deceiver, the liar, the swindler. Now you'll be Israel, the one who strives with God. You see, in this moment, although we don't understand what is happening, though it's hard to picture this moment, God is meeting Jacob, he is confronting Jacob, and he is changing Jacob. God is bringing Jacob to the end of himself. He is forcing him to struggle with the reality of his past, and he is changing him into a man who is called by the name of God, Israel. For us this morning, we have to understand that if you want to walk with God, if you want to be called by God's name, you have to come to the end of yourself. You see, God meets us and he engages us in struggle so that he can change our heart, so that he can shape our lives, so that we won't just be called by his name but that we would be taking his likeness. God is creating us into himself. You know, I remember those years ago when I was asked that question, who are you at crew ministry? Spending time frustrated, struggling, internally broken as I tried to confront the sins of my past. In those moments, I realized how sinful I was. I realized how desperate I was. And at times, I wondered if I was even a Christian. 
And although I didn't spend much time reading the Word of God in those days, I remember God calling to mind a text. In John chapter 12, verses, or John chapter 6, verses 67 to 68. Now this is right after Jesus told his disciple a very hard truth, and all the crowds started turning away. Jesus looked to them and asked them this question. He said, you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. You see what this text is illustrating here for this, this morning is that God will bring us to a place when we are out of answers, when we are out of personal solutions, when we have come to the end of ourselves. And what we should do in that moment is not to hunker down and hide, but to cling to the name of Jesus. You see, in that moment, I realized that I didn't have anything else. I realized that everything I wanted from myself, my whole wrestling career, trying to make a name for myself, it wasn't enough. And there, when I was desperate and broken, and all I had was Jesus, I had everything that I needed. God was using that moment of struggle to change my life and to turn me into something new. As we see, as we continue reading in our text, that when God changes someone, they always will carry that identity. But the struggle will continue. As we read forward and we continue in Jacob's story, we'll see that even though he carries the name of Israel, he will still carry his brokenness with him. And that brings us to our third point this morning. God is with you in your failures. Read with me in chapter 33, verses 1 to 3. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with the children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, with the morning light, we see Jacob emerging to greet his brother. And well, Jacob had originally sent everybody else before him, his servants and even his family. Now we're seeing J Jacob step out in front of everybody else to meet his brother Esau. And this is significant. I mean, last Jacob knew Esau was trying to kill him. And on top of that, Jacob just had his hip wrenched. That means if this comes to a struggle, if Esau really is here to fight, Jacob is going to be unable to fight back. And on top of that, if things go wrong, Jacob has no option to run away. Jacob is willing to step forward and trust God's promises for the first time in his life. He is here willing to confront the mistakes of his past and deal with the failures that he had originally set on everyone else. But as Jacob moves forward, something's going to happen that's unexpected. So we see here in verses 4 to 7. It says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. 
And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children who God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Like Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Now, this heartfelt reunion here we see in our text almost seems too good to be true. Here we have Esau, the manly man, the hunter man, the angry man. And here he is in Jacob's arms weeping. Not only is he overwhelmed to see Jacob, but he is elated that God has blessed Jacob and prospered him. He is looking on his brother with love. This is amazing. And this speaks volumes to the power that we have in prayer. You see, what's happening in, in the text, this restoration, is something that can only be brought on by God. Esau hated Jacob his entire life. Jacob hated Esau and spent all of his time tricking him and swindling him and trying to take everything he had. But God is working in a moment of prayer. You see, I think back in chapter 32, when Jacob was praying to God, he was hoping that somehow God would get him through the fight. But he failed to realize that God had another solution. God not only was going to deliver Jacob, he was going to confront him with the failures of his past. And what a victory we see here in the text. Not only is Jacob shocked by the response Esau. Esau is shocked by his brother, as we see in verses 8 and 11. It says, And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in your sight, my lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that I brought to you, because God has dwelt graciously with me, because I have enough. Thus he urged me, he took it. Now we're seeing here a shock in Esau by all these presents that Jacob has lavished on his brother. This is certainly not the man that Esau knew 20 years ago. Last he knew Jacob, he was trying to steal everything he had. But here Jacob is lavishing on gifts upon his brother. Which in a way brings Jacob's story full circle. You see, when Jacob left, he was a curse on Esau. Every moment he had, he was trying to get ahead of his brother. He was trying to steal everything he had in this earthly world. He took away his blessing. He took away his birthright. All the things that were supposed to go to the firstborn. He was a curse on his brother. But now he's a blessing. Here we see Jacob insisting that Esau would take the gifts of his hands because when he sees his brother, he sees the face of God. You see, in the night at Penuel, when Jacob wrestled with the Lord, he saw God's face. He realized the glory that was in front of him. And now he realizes that it was only God who could change Esau's heart. It was only God who could bring this sort of solution 
to his brother's conflict. God certainly had done it. And I would love to end our text right here and round out with Jacob being a hero. But oftentimes the Bible doesn't settle things the way we want it to. You see, all throughout Jacob's story, I was longing for him to overcome his past, to try up over his greatest sins and stop being a failure. But as we move forward, we will see Jacob walk away from this beautiful moment and walking away in sin. You see, as Esau greeted his brother, he urged him to allow him to escort him to his father's house. But Jacob insisted that he needed to stay back. He says the children and the animals, they're just too tired. We have to stay here. But he urged him, he promised him that we will make our way back to his father's house. But that's not what Jacob did. You see, after Esau left, rather than heading south back to his father's house, like he said he would, and like God asked him to, Jacob will head north. And he'll head north to the land of Shechem. And we'll see him settle down in a place that God had not called him to. Read with me in verses 18 to 20. It says, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar to God and called it El Elohi Israel. Now certainly from our text, Jacob has chosen the wrong direction. And next week we will see that Jacob's choice of action will have devastating consequences. But we'll have to get to that next week. For us this morning, as we are witnessing Jacob, what we have to understand, what we have to realize about Jacob and ourselves is that sin will be a constant reality in our lives. You see, just because God has called you by his name, just because God is shaping your heart and changing your lives, we will continue to struggle and wrestle with failure the rest of our lives. And I know that may sound discouraging. I know that may sound like a hard truth to end our text on, but that's our reality. But we also have to understand that we as Christians don't have to live here on earth according to a standard of perfection. You see, as we move through the Old Testament, they will come face to face with perfection. They will have to live under a law that will bear down on them all the days of their lives. They will constantly be living under the pressure of their sins. But we have been called after the likeness of Jesus. And what that means for you this morning, that no matter how many failures you have, no matter how many sins you make, no matter how many mistakes and failures, you will always be called by the name of the Lord. Nothing in all of this earth, nothing inside of your heart, nothing you can do will ever change the reality that you are called after the name of Jesus. And that means here this morning for each and every one of us that we will never arrive on this earth in a moment of perfection. But we will constantly have the perfection of God lavished upon us. 
We will constantly have to grow and change and be shaped and come to moments of struggle and distress and failure and be confronted by the Lord. But I guarantee you, if God has called you by his name, his purpose will prevail inside of you. You see, in our text, we have a man named Jacob who was changed forever, called after the name of Israel, but he will continue to struggle. Just like the nation, many generations later, that will be called by that name Israel. They will stumble and struggle and be distressed at the name of the Lord, but God will never abandon them. What we need to understand this morning is that Christians, we are not overcomers. We are not the heroes of our stories. We are sinners who have been overcome by grace. And the reality is, is that each and every person in this room, in order to be called by Christ, has to die. That is the reality that is littered all throughout the Bible. And what Jesus illustrated over and over and over again. Luke chapter 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. John chapter 12, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christian, you have to die. But the reality of our deaths is that God is not bringing us down to nothingness. God is not emptying us, but he is filling us with something new. He is filling us with the likeness of Jesus. Though we may walk through the failures of our whole life, we also understand that Jesus on the cross bore not only the worst of us, but the best of us. And we are called to die with Jesus. You see, Jesus carried every sorrow, every brokenness, every moment of distress, and every failure that you would be made in his likeness. So who are you? Now I have to admit, I still don't have a great answer to that question. If I'm honest with myself, I am a sinner. I am much like Jacob in his old days, the man who is a trickster and a liar and a deceiver, a man who is unworthy to be called by the name of the Lord. If I'm honest, I am unworthy of everything that God has to offer but I also know what God calls me. And I know who God is making me. So who are you? The reality of what the scripture says, if you are called by the name of Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the most high God. And nothing in all of this earth, in all of this world will ever change that. So I invite you this morning to struggle with me, wrestle with the Lord, and come to the end of yourselves and die, that you will be remade in the likeness of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. 
A grace that we do not deserve and could never earn. A grace that brings us to the end of ourselves. A a grace that bids us come and die. But a grace that makes us into something new. God, you have called us according to your likeness. And you have lavished on us the name of Jesus. We are so unworthy. But Jesus is worthy. And you have called us by his name. We praise you for that, Lord Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.